Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, welcome home, as Pastor Chris said to many of you who are here for the first time. We hope that you feel at home. That's our greatest desire That's why our pastors are out there and we're always hugging and loving on people. Our greatest desire is to help you take your next step in your spiritual journey, regardless of where you are. So welcome. And if you've been out a while, because some folks have been, some it was COVID, some it was your ex, some it was a lot of different things. But whatever the reason is, we're just so glad that you're back. Isn't it great to be in the house of God? Isn't it great to be in the presence of God? And isn't it great to be in spiritual community? We all need that. Well, welcome to our celebration of the resurrection, the day that changed everything. Ever since the fall of man in the garden, when man first experienced the power of sin. You know what the power of sin is? Fear and guilt and shame. Has anybody here ever lived with fear? Has anyone here ever lived with guilt? Has anyone here ever lived with shame? I remember when when I was a young kid, old people would look at you and they'd go, what does that mean? Shame on you. Shame on you. But the reality is that fear and guilt and shame have haunted us and taunted us, and reminded us that not only are we separated from God, but that we're separated from ourselves. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? Well, man is three-part, body, soul, and, and spirit. John 4, 24 tells us God is a spirit. And when Adam and Eve ate of the tree in the garden, they died physically, yes or no? No. They died mentally, their soul. No. So what was left? So every person born since Adam and Eve has been born spiritually dead. Mother Teresa was born spiritually dead. Billy Graham was born spiritually dead. So look right here. Even when you have it all, something's missing. I've had the privilege of pastoring NFL athletes who everywhere they went, someone wanted their autograph and wanted to be with them. They had all the trappings of everything that's supposed to be something. I pastored people who are struggling with addiction and just trying to get enough money to get their next drug fix. And in each case, each one of them think all they need is one other something. When it's not the all the trappings of economic success and success on the outside, then it's just your next fix. Or back as we used to say when we were kids, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I guess it's sex, drugs, and rap and roll. Now, But you look at those moments and you think, all of these things that I'm pursuing, and when I get them, I still know there's something missing. Why? Because man's problem is not physical. Man's problem is not mental. Man's problem is that he is spiritually dead. In 1979, I was speaking in the public schools in Sweden. They would bring me in and do English classes. It was pretty shocking because they were about 50 years ahead of us. 99% of the students didn't believe in God. Homeroom began with them handing out birth control pills in high school. And then they would introduce me as a speaker from America that was in this English class, and I wanted to speak to them about my story. 
And I tell about how I was raised in gangs and drugs and lived in a bar and blah, 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 blah. And then share my story and then say, but then Jesus changed my life. He transformed me. He raised me from the spiritually dead. At the end of one of those talks, they had question and answers afterwards and a beautiful blind-headed Swedish girl raised her hand and she said, I have a question. I said, okay. She said, you, you used to do drugs. I said, yes. She said, you used to be in gangs. She said, yes. She said, you used to steal and hurt people. I said, yes. She goes, you were bad. <laughs> I said, you, you, you. I, I was. And she said, but, but I'm not bad. That's how some people feel when we talk about sin. Jesus never came to make bad people good. He came to make spiritually dead people live. And your humble, kind, gracious pastor looked and said, you're right, you're not bad. You're dead. You're dead. So even if you're as good as you possibly can be, you're still spiritually dead and part of you is divided from yourself. What do I mean by that? Each time you fall short of what you intended to do. Each time when we sin, we live divided lives knowing that we're capable on our own of never, ever, ever achieving perfection so that sin's awful grip has a hold on us and would never let go until the day that changed everything. Romans 5.19 says this, one man's disobedience opened up the door for all humanity to become Sinners, say that, we're all sinners. Okay, come on now. We're all sinners, say that. Okay, and if you have any question with that, ask the person next to you. They would be happy to remind you of a few. So also one man's obedience opened up the door for many to be made, what? Perfectly right with God and acceptable to him. 2,000 years ago, there was finally one person that lived a perfect life without sin. And because he lived that perfect life and became the perfect sacrifice, we no longer have to live in the grip of fear and guilt and shame. You say, Pastor, as a Christian, you don't live with fear and guilt and shame? No. Well, what happens when you do something wrong? I become convicted by the Holy Spirit. Well, what, what is that? Convicted by, what does that mean? How many of you are old enough to remember the Uncle Sam signs that used to say, Uncle Sam wants you, and it was this finger, and no matter where you move, the, sign, the finger was still pointing right at you. Okay, when I do something wrong as a child of God, the Holy Spirit comes, and that finger, go apologize. Go apologize. Apologize. Okay, that was a terrible thought. Apologize. The amazing part about being a Christian is we get to repent of things when we think them long before we do them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The devil always uses that to push you away and to put guilt and fear and shame on you and to drive you away from God and to keep you in the habit of addiction or whatever it is that's keeping you away from him. But conviction always is specific and draws you right back to God. But Jesus not only lived a sinless life, he faced man's ultimate fear. What was that? What is all of our ultimate fear? Death. Death. 
Let me ask a question. How many of you did well in math in school? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you like straight A's? Raise your hand. How many of you then went on to college and you did great and made straight A's in college? Raise your hand in math. Raise your hand. Come on. I, I just want to say to you, each of you that raised your hand, I hate you in a Jesus Easter kind of way. Okay. I was the kid in the back of the class. Okay, I wasn't the teacher's pet. I was the one in the corner. I was the one that was throwing spitballs at the good-looking girl, hoping she'd turn around and look at me. That, that, that was me. But I do know enough about math to know this. One out of every one of you are going to die. You could have went to Gross Ted High School and you know that one out of every one is what? It's everybody. It's everybody. I've probably been with about 75 people when they passed. And I can tell you, it doesn't matter what your 401k is. It doesn't matter how many employees you have. It doesn't matter how much money you have. In those moments, death makes every giant a midget. But at the same time, I've seen 90-year-old ladies that barely weigh 90 pounds with a beaming smile on their face that looked like they were going to Disney World and that they were going to have more of a reward in the life to come than they ever had in all their joy here on earth. All of us are going to die. All of us are going to die. I, my wife hates it when I say this, but like, like I'm old. Like, there's some of you here that know me well, and you go, you know, Pastor Jacob, everywhere I go, people know you. No, I'm just old. It was like old. A, a lady came here. This was a while back. This lady with gray hair. I'm telling you, this lady looked 80. And she walked up to me, and she goes, Jacob, how are you? I said, fine. She said, I was in your youth group when you were 19. I'm like, So let me answer the question. People always want to know, Pastor, do you dye your hair? My daddy is 91 and his hair looks just like this. God will not allow you to be born brown, poor, and gray. <laughs> I know that I am going to die. You and I are going to die. And you know what the irony of life is? I mean, when, when you're young, you know, those of you that are young, how many of you are under 20? Raise your hand if you're under 20. That's great. Shut up. You don't know anything. But I, I remember when I was like 10 or 11. Do you remember that? When you couldn't wait to put teen on the end of your name? Like you had that aggravating uncle that came over on your birthday and went, oh, so you're going to be 12. 12. I'm going to be 13. And like you spit all over everybody. You couldn't wait to add teen on. How many of you remember that? Well, I remember. And then remember when you couldn't wait to get into high school? You know, when your voice finally assumed its normal position. And then it go like, hey, how are you? I'm in ninth grade. How do you need to know that? I'm shaving. You couldn't wait. And then after that, you can't wait to get out of high school. Remember those days? And then you begin your career or, or, or college. And then after you begin that, then you couldn't wait to get married. And then after marriage, you couldn't wait to have 
children. <laughs> and then after children, you wish you were back in junior high school again. <laughs> Remember that? L- listen, listen. When you get over 50, you don't start looking forward and counting. You start like counting backwards, like how many years do you have left? Like you start thinking, okay, I'm 63. Okay, if I live to be the average person, lives to be like 80. Okay, I mean, then if I count backwards and that gives me, you know, 17. I mean, you start thinking that way. The wisest man that ever lived next to Jesus, his name was Solomon. And when he thought of that, here's what he said. I've built all of these things. I have all this wealth. I've amassed all of these kingdoms. And he said, it's like this. Just as soon as I got it, it's like vapor and it disappears or I disappear. I disappear. What happens when you die? Because we will. Listen to Romans 5, 17, where it says, death once held its grip. By the blunder of one man, death, what? Reigned as king over humanity. But now, how much more are we held in the grip of grace as we continue reigning as kings in life, enjoying the regal freedom, the gift of perfect righteousness in the only, one and only Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus' sinless life defeated sin, removing fear, guilt, and shame from the child of God. And now, His resurrection defeated man's final enemy, death. Which, by the way, listen to me. If you can't defeat death, how are you going to help me defeat something you've never defeated? How are you going to help me defeat something you've never defeated? Listen to the greatest Christian convert in history who wrote these words as he faced death. Three times he was beaten and left for dead. Listen to what he says. In Corinthians 15, death swallowed up by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? For it was sin that made death so frightening and the law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, and death are gone. The gift of our master, Jesus Christ, what? And we can all say that last part? Thank God. But all of Jesus' teachings were based upon one thing. A lot of people think that that, that Christianity is one of many religions on a huge buffet. How many of you know what a buffet is? That's what Cajuns eat at Halloween. I I didn't know what a buffet here is. When I came to South Louisiana, I would hear people say things like, hey, go save those dishes. Now, I was spiritual, but I never heard of dishes being saved. I mean, everything got saved. Save the lawnmower. Man, that's a sanctified, I mean, everything. But, but, but the, the, the other thing was, they said a buffet. And I'm from Texas. I'm like, what is that? They said, you know, that's a bunch of food on the table. I said, you mean a buffet? No, a buffet. See, see people believe that Christianity is one of a multiplicity of things that are on the buffet. And if you grew up eating crawfish and sucking their heads, even though you're a beautiful woman and sticking your finger in there till the eyes wiggle back and forth and then going. When I came to South Louisiana, that freaked, I'm gonna tell you, that freaked me out. 
I mean, you see, you look at a girl and go, she is hot. And all of a sudden, she's sucking the head of a crawfish. His eyes are wiggling back and forth. She sticks her finger in there and goes, and you go, she's not as fine as I thought she was. I'm not kissing dog <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I always wonder, maybe you do too, who was the first guy that got so hungry? He's sitting there in the basin going, man, I am hungry. And thought a crawfish looked good. But now, you and I, facing death, and everyone will, people think that as Christianity, it's, it's just a whole buffet. You grew up eating the buffet of Christianity, and so that's what you're comfortable with. But some people grew up at the Muslim buffet, and some people grew up at the Baptist, and some people grew up at the Atheist buffet. And whatever you choose, it's your own spiritual buffet. They're all the same, and they all end up at the same place. Nothing could be further from the truth. Do all roads lead to Baton Rouge? Then surely all paths do not lead to the same place. So what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world? What's the difference between the Muslim and the Buddhist and the Hindu and those that believe in Confucius and those that believe in some other guru or Swami? What is the difference? God knew that you and I would have those questions, and so he did something that would distinguish his son, the savior of the mankind, from every other religious leader in all of history. And you know what that was? Jesus based all of his teachings on one thing, on one thing, one thing. If I come back from the dead, you'll know it's true. All Jesus had to do to become another philosopher or another teacher or another guru who taught great things and did miracles was stay dead. But again, If he couldn't defeat death, how is he going to help you when you die? How can he defeat what he never defeated himself? So the resurrection of Jesus became the final answer. Many years ago, 1979, I was preaching at UL. Most of you weren't even born then. I was standing there in what was called the free speech alley. Then there was a bowling alley over here in the student union. They have a new student union now. And there's a wall there that was called free speech area. And I was standing there on that wall preaching. I had on Jardash jeans. I had on flip-flops. I had a wine shirt. My hair was down to here, feathered back. And I would like to humbly tell you I had it going on. And I would start preaching a three-minute message, and when the class would let out, kids would start coming, and I'd go, there are a lot of you here, and you're out partying, you're at the strip, you're at Peach, you're out doing all kinds of crazy things, and you're running around, and you're doing all things, and you need to turn your life over to Jesus, and you need to repent of your sin. Jesus is waiting for you. I don't care if you was raised Catholic or Baptist. And then I'd start over again for the next crowd. A guy walked up, and he sat there for about 10 minutes, and he looked at me, and he goes, hey, you keep repeating yourself. A guy waited after I got through speaking. By the time I'd spoken for about 15 or 20 minutes and everybody settled down in their classes, I, I stepped down and this dark-skinned man walked up to me and he goes, you would be a very good Muslim. I said, like, did you hear what I've been saying? He goes, you would be a very good Muslim. I said, I'd be a terrible Muslim. He goes, no, 
We, we are at the mosque across the street. There's a mosque across the street at UL. How many of you know that? There's a mosque. And he said, I would like for you to come and talk to us tomorrow. And we can compare Jesus and Muhammad. I, I said, great. I was fired up. I just heard my spiritual mentor who we had last Easter, Josh McDowell, debate the leading Muslim theologian in the world, Ahmad Didat in Durban, South Africa. And he had the cassette tapes. And before 5,000 radical Muslims in a debate, he destroyed Ahmad Didat. And I had these cassette tapes and I'd memorize them. Do any of you remember what cassette tapes were? They were the things that came after eight tracks. Does anybody remember eight tracks? Raise your hand. Oh, people, I love you. And, and I, I, I memorized those and I came in and man, I had those two cassette tapes right here. It was like I was packing a gun. I went into that mosque and they sat down and, and they were exchanged niceties and you, you're very zealous and you, okay. and then he began by saying this, do you know that Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet? I said, really? He said, yes, but we believe that the last prophet was Muhammad. He was the last prophet. Jesus was a prophet, but the last final prophet was Muhammad. And Jesus and Muhammad are just the same. Let's compare them. I said, okay. And he said, Muhammad was a good man. And I said, good man. He said, well, Muhammad lived for his people. And I said, and then he smiled and he said, ah, but Muhammad died for his people. And I smiled back and said, and there was about a 30 second pause. And I said, and? He said, and what? I said, Jesus rose again on the third day for his people. He said, well, Muhammad hasn't made it yet. And not only has he not made it, he will never, ever make it. Only one person has conquered death, hell, and the grave, lived a sinless life, and he is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. What has the resurrection changed? The resurrection has changed everything. No one has ever come back from the dead after three days that was not connected to Jesus. Has there anyone that's ever come back from the dead? There actually has been many. I would encourage you to go, go, go pull up YouTube. Doctor comes back from the dead. The first one will come up with Dr. Eben Alexander, a Harvard neurologist who was brain dead. He actually shows the scan of when he was brain dead and how he went to heaven and what happened to him while he was there. Then you'll get two or three other physicians. One was someone who drowned in a kayak and was dead for 45 minutes and came back to life. Another was dead for almost two hours and came back to life. But there's only one other individual that's been dead for longer than three days that ever came back to life, and he was raised back to life by Jesus. And you know what his name was? His name was Lazarus. Why? Because God wanted mankind to know that his son alone was the savior of the world and that it isn't an equal buffet of religions, but there is one that rises on all the table and all the buffets of religion. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the perfect one. He is the one that is there every single time you need him. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to over 500 different people on 40 different occasions. Over 500 different people on 40 different occasions. During one of those times, he talked to his disciples. Listen to what he said to them in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, don't you remember the words that I spoke to you when I was with you? I told you that I would fulfill what? Everything written about me, including the prophecies of? That was written thousands of years before Jesus' birth. Through the? Written almost a thousand years before his birth. And all the writings of the prophets. He supernaturally unlocked their understanding to receive the revelation of Scripture and said to them, everything that has happened fulfills the Scriptures, what? Prophesied of me that the Messiah was destined to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And now you must go into all nations and preach. Preach what? Come on, it's hard to say that, but say it with me. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. What comes first? Then, now let me explain repentance because some of you come from a concept where you think of repentance and you confuse that with repentance. My, my father-in-law was one of the most devout men I've ever known. He actually went to mass every day of his whole life. Never missed a day. In his teenage years when he was struggling with lust and drinking and things that, that average teenagers could struggle with, you know what he would do? He would take bottle caps and put them in his converse. How many of you remember the real converse? Chuck Taylor, not those fake knockoffs they have today. And he would take those bottle caps and he would put them facing with the sharp end and his feet and he would play basketball so that his feet would bleed to pay for his sins. That's called penance. But how many of you know that 2,000 years ago someone's blood was shed? to pay for all of your sins because you could never pay for it yourself. If you could, Jesus never would have had to come. <laughs> Repentance means to see, to hate, and to turn away. It's like I'm on the highway going this direction and I realize, whew, I'm going the wrong way. I stop, I turn around, and I head the other direction. To see, to hate, to turn away. The Greek word is metanoia. It means a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Listen carefully to me. I love everybody here. And don't, don't think anything that I'm, I'm personal. You know, people often say to me when I'm preaching, Pastor, were, were, were you personally meaning that for me? Was that personal? Look right here. Of course it was. It'd be stupid for me to preach to anybody else. You're here. They're not. But here's what repentance is. I, I, I know a pastor who is a teenager did something that he's regretted all of his life. He's 80 years old now. When he was a teenager, he went out and he began to steal some of these. Remember these construction lights? How many remember those blinking construction lights that every teenager wanted in their house? That was a poor man's version of a strobe light. And, and he and some of his buddies stole some of those off of a highway that was blocking a bridge that was out. And later that night, two teenagers were driving, and because they saw no sign there and no lights there, 
They went off the bridge and died. Do you know what repentance is? Repentance is you're going in a direction filled with fear and guilt and shame. And its ultimate end is destruction. And someone loves you enough to stop and say, stop, repent, turn around and go the other direction. Repentance is the most loving thing you can say to someone who's living a life that will ultimately end in fear, guilt, shame, and destruction. When you repent, then comes forgiveness. You can't get drunk and on the way of getting drunk, ask God to forgive you because you're going to do the same thing tomorrow night. That's not repentance. That's a cheap life insurance policy for hell. You can't keep sleeping with someone you're not married to. If you say you've repented, the grace of God not only gives you the power to feel sorry for what you've done, but the power to stop doing it. He said to preach forgiveness and repentance of sins and start right here in Jerusalem. There are over 300 specific predictions about the life of Jesus that would be fulfilled in his life that were spoken anywhere from 700 years to 5,000 years before he was born. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, that he would be born of the seed of a woman. Do we have any medical professionals here? Raise your hand. Okay, do we have any women that have had children? Raise your hand. You're a medical professional. Where does the seed come from when two people are involved and a baby is created? Where does the seed come from? Seed comes from the man. There's only been one child in all of history, one conception in all of history that was from the seed of a woman, and it was Mary, and the baby was named Jesus. And I want to remind you that the last person at the cross was Mary. And if anybody would have known he wasn't the Son of God, and if it wasn't divine origin, and it wasn't from the seed of a woman, she would have. She would have. Let me give you something just to think about. There's more people alive today on earth from 1900 to today than lived from 1900 all the way back to the beginning of time. So right now on earth, there are almost as many people alive as has ever lived in all of history. That's pretty astounding. But God wanted to send us a message, and when he did, he wanted to make it so specific that not one person could ever stand before God and go, uh... I, I, I know that. The Bible says it like this in the book of Romans. We are without excuse. We are without excuse. Number one, that he would be born of the seed of a woman. Number two, that he would be of one of Noah's three sons named Shem. When the entire earth flooded, God started over with eight people. And three of them were Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. God eliminates two-thirds of all the future population of the world. Then he says he would be a descendant of Abraham. Then he says he will be of the line of Isaac. Abraham had two sons. One was named Isaac. He eliminates 50% of his descendants. And then he says he'll be of the line of Jacob. Jacob has his name changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. Then he says he'll be of the tribe of Judah. Out of those 12 sons, God eliminates 11 twelfths and comes down to Judah, which is the people we call the Jews. And then that he will be of the family of Jesse, Jesse had eight sons, and it said he would be of the household of David. That was one of eight sons. God eliminates seven-eighths 
of Jesse's family. It says that he would be crucified. This was spoken 800 years before crucifixion was ever created. That he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. That he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. When that prophecy was written, the currency of the time was gold. That that silver would be used to buy a potter's field. And that his hands and his feet would be pierced. That was written 200 years before crucifixion was ever created. That's 14 There are 300 just like that. Why? Because God wanted you to know that none of us are going to have an excuse. Now, let me give you the mathematical probabilities. That's one to the 17th power. Let me give you a mental picture. How many of you know that I'm from Texas? How many of you know why I left? All my exes. You can drive 24 hours straight through the state of Texas and still be in Texas. How many of you know that? If you took the entire state of Texas, here's the mathematical probabilities, and you took half dollars and you filled the entire state of Texas two feet high, and then you took one of those half dollars and you put an X on it, and you threw it somewhere in the middle of all of this, and you took a Texas-sized cake mixer and you mixed it all up, And you took a person in a helicopter who flew a man who was blindfolded, who randomly said, stop here in the middle of the state of Texas. And the chances are that they would stop there. This man blindfolded would get out of the helicopter, reach down. First time that he reached down, pick up the one with an X on it is the same mathematical probabilities that one person could fulfill eight things 200 years before their time. But Jesus fulfilled over 300 written thousands to hundreds of years before his birth. Why? Because God wanted us to know that he was indeed the son of God who defeated sin, who defeated death, who fulfilled all prophecy. But it gets better. When you talk to people about defending Christianity, they look and they go, you know, when Jesus appeared, yes, he resurrected, they say, but he, he only appeared to his friends. Nothing could be further from the truth. Three years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his greatest enemy. Three years. Do you know what his name was? Anybody know? His name was Saul. He was a Jewish Hebrew zealot who thought, he thought that Christians were perverting Judaism, and so he would get letters from the Roman authorities and imprison Christians and kill them. And he was on his Damascus road going to do the more of the same in Damascus. And while he was on the road, God knocked him off of his horse. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus, the one that you're kicking against and persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against me? And he was blinded for three days. A man named Ananias, a Christian, came and prayed for him. God healed him. He told him everything that he would do in this man who imprisoned and killed Christians, would be beaten three times and left for dead. Three times and left for dead and be imprisoned for most of the rest of his life. How many of you enjoy reading the New Testament? Raise your hand. How many of you have enjoyed Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Hebrews? Do you know who wrote all those? Paul did, most of them, while he was in prison. Jesus not only appeared to his friends, 
he appeared to his greatest enemy. But you know what's amazing? He's still appearing to his greatest enemies. Now, let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest. How many of you were ever non-Christian acting at points in times in your life? Raise your hand. How many of you are thankful that YouTube and video phones were not available during your youth? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Raise them all. Don't make me confess your sin publicly in front of everybody here. You know what the Bible calls us at that moment? Enemies of God. You say, but Pastor, come on, I wasn't an enemy. Listen, I'm Mexican. Mexicans are always sensitive about God, even when we're his enemy. Come on. Mexicans have children named Jesus. When's the last time you met a white guy named Jesus? So we were very sensitive religiously, but listen to what Jesus himself said made you his enemy. Matthew 12, 30. Anyone who isn't with me and everyone who isn't working is actually working. So based upon Jesus' words, how many of you have been an enemy of Jesus? Raise your hand. But you know what's amazing? The Bible says while we were yet sinners, his enemies, he died for us. He died for us. Not only did he appear to Paul, his enemy, he is still appearing to his enemies and raising them from the spiritually dead. Romans 8, 11 says, yes, God raised Jesus to life. And since God's spirit of resurrection lives in you, that's why I love that song. His resurrecting life is resurrecting me. It's resurrecting me. He will raise your dying body to life with the same spirit that breathes life into you. You say, Pastor, so what does that mean? Well, I told you about Jesus and I told you about Paul. But now I want to show you some people that he's still appearing to as his greatest enemies. Colin LeBlanc was an only child. Went to Acadiana High School, was a baseball star until addiction began to overtake his life. It was generational. His father had struggled with addictions. His mom and dad divorced. And even though he was the only child and he had a mama who prayed for him, his life was out of control. So out of control that everybody in his life has said, we don't want anything to do with you. Have you ever tried to help someone you love that's in addiction. Look at me. They will never turn to God for help as their Savior until you stop being their Savior. You might have to do what you think hurts them at the moment so that you can actually help them for a lifetime. That's a good place to clap. Many people need to hear that. Many people need to hear that. Colin's mom was the only person that still had hope and prayed. One day in a small group here, one of our leaders was sharing how he'd been delivered out of heroin addiction and opiates coming from one of the most prominent families in Acadiana. Colin's mom was in the group as a support group and she walked up and she said, is there any way you could call my boy? 
He's my only child. I love him, but, but he's addicted. Nathan reached out to him and he called him and Kylan just blew him off. A year later, how many of you know there's no coincidences? Nathan's doing his business and he's going through his phone and he wants to call somebody named Kyle, but he accidentally pushes Kylan. Accidentally. And Kylan answers the phone. Hey, Bob, who is this? This is Nathan. Remember, I'm the guy that talked to you a year ago and told you that Jesus could change your life. Your mom asked me to talk with you. She was crying. He said, Bob, I'm broke down on the Evangeline Thuway. I ran out of gas coming home from my drug dealers. I didn't have any money, so my daddy just came and gave me $5 and said, I never believed I could have a son as worthless as you. I'll do anything. The next day, Nathan took him to Teen Challenge at Cape Girardeau, Missouri, where he gave his life to Christ. And God raised him from the spiritually dead. He would stay there for almost two years and come back a transformed man and come right back to the very church where his mama had been praying for him get connected with Joseph, my son, through sub 30, started serving there one day on a golf cart serving. He picked up a beautiful blonde-headed girl, started talking to her. I had the privilege of marrying them a year ago. Today, they're expecting their first baby. She's an elementary school teacher character. Colin LeBlanc, would you stand up along with your beautiful wife? He's still raising the dead. He's still raising the dead. Look at me. You know what only would have made this better? In the previous service, Kylan's daddy was on the second row. He was there because he saw what God did inside of him. Never been to church in years. Was baptized right here just a few months ago because of what he saw God do. H.J. Adams was a high school football star in New Orleans. Went to parochial school, excelled, got a college scholarship. Those of you that know him, he has about 1% body fat, and I hate him every time I see him. He makes Pastor Chris look out of shape. (laughs) Ten years ago, he fell in love with a girl from Kaplan, Louisiana, and moved to Lafayette. He'd been a trainer for the New Orleans Saints actually when Pastor Chris was there and for IMG Academy that deals with elite athletes. He moved here to begin his new life. He got a job immediately at the City Club working with some of the most affluent people in Lafayette. He had everything that he thought he wanted. He tried some business ventures and things began to implode. In 2014, his wife bought a ticket to Michelle's conference for women called Arise. She heard Christine Kane and was born again and raised from the spiritually dead and began to tell H.J., that's what you need. I knew H.J. I would try to talk to him. There was nothing there. She kept telling him, this is what you need, H.J., this is what you need. And it wasn't until two years ago on New Year's Eve when he was sobbing and broken and thinking of leaving that his wife picked up the phone and called a Christian couple in our church. And they said, come over. He said, 1130, come over now at 1130. They came, three couples came 
And that day he was born again and raised from the spiritually dead. He has one of the most successful businesses here, hitting it with H.J. Many of you know him and his beautiful wife and family. He's still raising people from the dead. Ted Scott had a passion for golfing all of his life and tried to be a good person. All that his efforts reminded him is every religion that he tried, it just showed him that he was sinful and that he was a mess and he could never live right. Finally, one day he fell in love with a beautiful girl from Opelousas, Louisiana named Melody. She was a part of a little Baptist church and And so he figured if I'm engaged to her, I guess I better go and meet her parents. And so he went to the church. At the end of church, the pastor said, if you want to be born again, come forward. She came forward. And so he just walked with her because she went. Pastor walked up and said, what do you need? He goes, I don't know. I'm up here because she is. He said, well, why don't you wait and talk with me afterwards? In that conversation, he showed him that he was a sinner and that he needed to repent and that he could be born again and Christ could change his life and raise him from the spiritually dead. 11 years ago, when we began the Opelousas campus, Ted Melanie, one of the first people that came and joined, he actually called Pastor Eugene. He said, listen, I want to talk to you. I got a problem with tithing, giving 10% of your income. And Pastor Eugene said, okay. He said, I believe that 10% is the bare minimum that you are to give God. Pastor Eugene said, well, I agree with you. He was the caddy for Bubba Watson for 15 years, the two times master's champion, retired a year ago. And a young golfer, a young golfer named Scotty Shuffler asked him if he would come out of retirement and be his golfer 50 weeks ago. He'd never won a tournament. He's done nothing but win every tournament ever since, including the master's two weeks ago. And today he's the number one golfer in the world. And Ted Scott is preaching to everybody, everywhere that he goes. He's preparing for the Riders Cup right now. Why? Because he's still raising the dead. It doesn't matter who you are. Chris and Kenneth Pippen were like a lot of you, successful, hardworking. They own the garden center right off Kali Saloom and, and, and Pinhook. They're hardworking, but but never had Christ in the center of their life. And so one day she just said, we got to do something. And she somehow found this church, came and said, we're coming. The things that they fought over, the things that they'd walked through, the turmoil that came to their family. But all of that changed. All of that changed. They didn't become perfect, but they became transformed and resurrected by Jesus Christ. And in her words, we would have stayed together. We just would have been miserable. But what means the most to me is that God has not only changed me and Chris, but God has changed our family as well. So the Pippin family, would you stand up right here, Chris and Kenneth Pippin, and all of their family. He's still raising people from the dead. Thank you. Bree Hubbard's daddy was a professor at Texas A&M. She had a great life. She excelled in FFA and was close to her father until divorce hit in the middle of her high school years. And to deal with her pain and the separation anxiety, she turned to drugs and alcohol and ultimately abusive relationships. Somehow in the middle of that, she found a Cajun oil worker in that area that, that checked all the boxes He partied, he drank, he did drugs, and he abused her. 
her actual words to me as she was telling me her story was, Pastor, people always wonder, why do women stay in relationships like that? And here's what she said. When people tell you long enough that you're worthless and you're useless and you don't matter, then one day you think that's what you deserve. One night in Lafayette, as their businesses began to grow more successful, it just meant more money for partying, more money for alcohol, more money for drugs. She was miserable. She grabbed a bottle of pills and a bottle of alcohol and said, God, if you can't help me, I'm just going to die. That's the last thing she remembered. She blacked out. And this story is exactly as I tell you verbatim. She said, I don't know how, but the next morning I woke up in the pew on Sunday morning at our Savior's church. I was born again, raised from the spiritually dead, went home, got out of that abusive relationship. And today she is a staff member at our Savior's church. Bree, would you stand up? He's still raising people from the dead. He's still raising people from the dead. See, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what spectrum of life you've come from. Man's problem is spiritual. And there isn't enough that you can get in this life that will ever replace you being in union with the one that loves you the most and the Savior that died for you. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, I've been christened, I've been baptized, I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a great start, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're born again, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, how, how can I do that? It's as easy as ABC. A, admit that you're a sinner. Hey, if you got problems admitting that, ask somebody close to you, they'll help you. B, Believe that Jesus Christ became your sin bearer. Someone will die for your sin, either he did or you will. See, confess Christ as your Lord and Savior as you turn away from sin to be born again through repentance. Have you been born again? In a moment, I'm going to pray for those who want to be born again. The last 30 seconds, I want to speak to some of you that have been born again but you've been away from God for a long time in fellowship. When I was the chaplain of the saints, we drafted Ricky Williams. How many remember those days? I was discipling one of the players whose locker was right next to him. And I said, hey man, I heard Ricky was a Christian. What is he doing? And he looked at me, he goes, pastor, Ricky just out of fellowship. How many of you know that you can be married and still not be in fellowship with your wife or your husband? Listen carefully to me. Today, some of you have just been away. Just been away. And what God wants you to do is to repent and come home. There's no guilt. There's no shame. Listen, this is not a palace for the perfect. This is a hospital for the hurting that need Jesus. If you're a mess, you're in the right place. But you can't stay that way. You're in the right place. So would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you for the grace of God. I thank you for the precious people that are here that you love so much. I thank you that many who can't even articulate what they sense and what they feel, it's you speaking to them. So now with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to ask you, do you want to be born again? 
I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, if you're here and you say, Pastor, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. But today I want to turn away from my sin to be born again. I want to turn from it so I can turn to God. I know I've been going a direction where the bridge is out. The most loving thing you can say to me is stop, repent, turn around, and turn to God. Guilt, fear, and shame remind me, Pastor, that I'm not who I need to be. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if that's you on the count of three, if you've never been born again, and today you want to be born again, you want to turn away from sin, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand And I'm just going to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm just pray for you right at your seat, right where you are. One, God brought you here. Two, nothing is ever an accident. Every story you heard, some of these stories, you went, that's me, that's me. That's because God is talking to you. And now is your day to be born again, to be free from fear and guilt and shame. Three, if that's you, raise your hand high. You want to be born again, raise it high. All over this building, yes. One, two, three, keep it high. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Anywhere else? 17, 18, 19. Okay, you can put your hands down. Last 10 seconds. Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these 19, but my heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know this is what I need. I know God is talking to me. I don't know why I've waited so long to surrender. That's me. That's what I need today. I want you, if that's you, if you didn't raise your hand yet, to wave it at me right now. 19, join these. Raise it. 20, 21, 22, 23. Okay. Now, church, let's pray out loud with all of those that raised their hand to be born again. We're all going to pray together in just a moment. Before we do, I want to ask one last thing. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I'm born again, but I've been away. I've been out of fellowship for a while. I need God. I need the house of God. I need God's people, his presence. I've been away, but I'm coming home today. I'm coming home. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand real high right now. Come on, all over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now church, let's pray out loud together. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. And I am coming home to God.